Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at the statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to a city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. There are times in life when we are glad to have evidence to back up our claims. Corroborating evidence, if you will. Sometimes this may come if you're ever in a court of law and you need to validate the statements that you are making or if the witnesses who are on your side need to have some kind of demonstration that what they said is actually historically what took place, whether through the form of video or photographs or some kind of other documentation. Of course, this comes in handy in other places in life. A couple of weeks ago, we had a picnic at, uh, at a pavilion that we had reserved locally. And uh, when we arrived, there were some people there. And they were a little bit hesitant to move out of the pavilion until they started to see that we had a group of people coming. And uh, it was very nice for me, very comforting for me to have the email of the reservation ready to show them if they contested the fact that we had reserved this pavilion. We had corroborating evidence to our claim that we had actually reserved the pavilion. And so it is with many things in life. We don't just want to have our word or for someone else to take our word as reliable as that might be. But the more evidence that we can pile up and the more, uh, the more we can corroborate that, the more it's going to reassure us that what has been spoken is the truth. And so it is here when Mary arrives at Elizabeth's home. Mary has no need to have this corroborating evidence given to her that the angel Gabriel's promise from God was actually true. We have an acknowledgement, even when Elizabeth speaks to Mary, that Mary had believed the things that had been spoken. And yet God graciously gives her, and even us today who read this, additional testimony, additional confirmation that this child that Mary was promised would be born. And not only that this child would be born, but that he would be who the angel said that he would be. And so when we come to this place in the gospel, we're seeing that this child is actually the son of God. This is not just something that happened where a child was born and people began to make this up or to start to make these amazing claims later in Jesus' life. But here we have testimony from the very beginning, even before this baby was born, possibly even before he was conceived, that he was who God promised Mary that he would be. And so this is a testimony of the truthfulness of the angel's words. 
Now, just to catch us up, if you uh, didn't catch these things in the previous section, verses 26 through 38, the angel Gabriel came and told Mary that she had found favor with God and that she was going to conceive in her womb and bear a son and that this conception would be miraculous, that this would take place in a unique and supernatural way. And she was told to name him Jesus, verse 31. And then she was told all about what this child would be. He would be great. He would be called the son of the most high. And he would sit on David's throne, this, uh, this king of Israel who had been promised a line of descendants to rule over the house of Israel. And that's exactly what he has promised he would do. That he would reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom would have no end. In response to this, she believed the message, but wanted some clarification how this was going to come to pass. And the angel answered and said, this is the Holy Spirit's work in verse 35. And then he pointed to Mary's relative, Elizabeth, verse 36, and says, if you want to see how something like this not only can take place, but also already has taken place, just go look at Elizabeth. Because she already has conceived a son despite being in old age. And she who was called barren, verse 36, is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. Mary believes the message without having this additional confirmation, and yet the angel Gabriel drops this not-so-subtle hint. You should go see what's going on with Elizabeth. And when she goes to visit, what we'll find in this text is that God confirms his incredible promise to Mary in a powerful way, through the supernatural reaction of both Elizabeth and her unborn son, John. Again, God confirms his incredible promise to Mary in a powerful way through the supernatural reaction of both Elizabeth and her unborn son, John. And so we come to this account where Mary visits Elizabeth. We might call this passage a tale of two miraculous mothers. Because what we find in this text is that the unexpected are both now expecting. And these two will testify of the reality of who Jesus is. We begin by looking at the first part of this event of Mary's entrance and greeting, verses 39 and 40. Mary's entrance and greeting. Now at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry, went with haste to the hill country, to a city of Judah. This is where Zacharias and Elizabeth lived in the southern region of Israel, the territory of Judah. This would have been where Jerusalem was and, of course, uh, the territory south of that, roughly speaking. Uh, from where Mary was in Galilee, in the city of Nazareth, this would have been uh, maybe a three or a four day journey to get there. You can't just hop in the car and drive. This is maybe 80 to 100 miles, and she is going to have to, to go there. We're left with a lot of unanswered questions. Did she go by herself, this young lady, all the way across this treacherous trek on these, uh, across these roads where robbers would often lie in wait in different places? Well, likely not, but it's possible. We don't really know. What we do know is that she went and she showed up there and she went in a hurry once she had heard that, that uh, Elizabeth was also pregnant. So she left with haste and she goes and she entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. She goes and she goes to where Zacharias is, but uh, nothing is said from this point on about him and whether he's there or not, whether she greeted him or not, it really is kind of irrelevant to the story. She is there for one purpose, and that is to see Elizabeth. Now, why does she want to go see Elizabeth? Well, the first thing is that she wants to see what had been told to her confirmed in an even greater way. Now, the fact that she goes to see him could be construed by us as, well, you know, is Mary kind of doubting what she was initially told, like she was fine with what she heard, but then she kind of started to back up and not be so sure anymore. Well, this is not the case because, for one thing, Elizabeth is, says in uh, verse 45 that she believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. But also, the entire reason she's there is because she's believing the words that the angel spoke to her in the first place. The angel is the one who gave her this information. The angel is the one who says, hey, you should go and see her. So if anything, this is not a lack of faith or a matter of doubting, but in fact, believing all the more by the fact that she's, she's listening to Gabriel and going where he actually said to go. 
God has clearly hinted here that she should go and see Elizabeth. And he wants to strengthen her faith. God sent a message through the angel Gabriel. He wanted Mary to believe it. But he also wanted Mary to have this message confirmed through further proof. And it's fascinating when you consider the distinction here, once again, between Zacharias and Mary. Zacharias, in verse 18, said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. He wants some additional indication from God. But he doesn't get it. But here, God gives to Mary the exact thing that Zacharias wanted. Additional confirmation. So why the difference? Well, because Zacharias started from a point of unbelief. And God said, I'm not going to accommodate that. I'm not going to honor that unbelief by giving you a sign. But with Mary... She did believe initially, and God says, because you believed, I am gladly giving you additional confirmation. And isn't this the way that God so often works? When someone wants a sign, they get nothing. But when someone is willing to believe, they receive with clarity what God wants them to know. We find this, for example, in the parables of Jesus where he says that uh, the parables were given so that those who can see would understand and those who were willing to believe the things that Jesus spoke would understand because he would explain them. But he spoke in parables in part to hide the truth of God from the people who were rejecting him. So he's giving them the truth, but he's doing so in a way where they wouldn't understand it. It's to pass judgment upon them. God looks upon our disposition and our direction of how willing we are to believe him and then the proof comes not so that we will believe initially, but on the basis of our response to his word. At the same time, God is very gracious here to accommodate the need for our faith to be strengthened. God is not simply out to say, well, I'm giving you one bit of information in isolation from everything else and I'm never giving you anything else at all. And so when we go to the scriptures, we have various things that demonstrate the reality of the truth. We have multiple witness for, witnesses for many things. We have multiple gospel accounts that tell us about the life of Jesus from various angles. We have prophecies fulfilled. We have detailed historical records in all kinds of ways that show us the reality and the reliability of scripture. So God is not saying, I'm going to tell you one little message and you need to either take it or leave it. But he does reward those who are willing to believe him and to take him at his word with additional information that strengthens our faith. So Mary is going to Elizabeth. She's not going because she doesn't believe, but instead because she does. And God graciously lets her have even more confirmation of what he has already spoken. So she goes for that confirmation. But there's another reason that it's possible that she is going as well, which is that there is only one other person in this entire world who is going to be able to sort of sympathize with what Mary is going through. Um, we can't say for sure that this is what she was after, but this is certainly someone that she ended up being able to dwell with. Because in verse 56, it says that Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned home. No one except Elizabeth and presumably Zacharias, of course, knows that Elizabeth is pregnant. And no one except for Mary at this point knows that this is going to happen. And so there's a little bit of a camaraderie here where they can actually, uh, they can sympathize with each other. Uh, or they can not so much sympathize over sadness, but they can, uh, they can live with one another and they can understand what is going on. Either way, she goes and she gets the message from the angel and she goes to Elizabeth and she comes in and greets her. And that's when the magic starts to happen. Because there are two different kinds of reactions to what, uh, what Mary did when she came in that we're now going to see. Two reactions of different kinds. One is physical and one is verbal. The physical reaction is the reaction of the baby that Elizabeth is carrying. The verbal reaction is that of Elizabeth herself. They are both plainly the work of God the Holy Spirit to do something supernatural in each individual person. And they both testify to the truthfulness and the significance of the message that Mary has just been told. We begin in verse 41 with John's supernatural reaction. John's supernatural reaction. Verse 41, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. This baby has been 
instructed to his father to be named John. He has not actually yet received his name, uh, so he is not called John here. But we know him as John, who would later become known as John the Baptist. And so we'll just call him that so that we're all on the same page. Uh, The baby leaped in her womb. This is a kind of leaping that is a leap for joy. And she says this, in fact, in verse 44. When the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. The baby is thrilled that the mother of the Lord Jesus has come to him. And this is obviously something that goes beyond normal baby kicking. Elizabeth may or may not have by now begun to feel those precious uh, little uh, touches that come from the baby starting to move around. Um, we don't know for sure. She's in her sixth month. So it's possible by this point, maybe even likely that that's happened. But clearly here she understands that this is not just the normal baby growing and moving kind of motion. This is very obviously uh, distinct from that. The baby leaps in her womb for joy. And in fact, this is, in verse 44, the inspired by the Holy Spirit interpretation of what happened. So it's not just Elizabeth interpreting that on her own. So John the Baptist then, before he is born, leaps for joy. Why? Because even though he himself is not yet out of the womb or able to do anything that humans can do once they're out, he's filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb And that causes him to have this kind of reaction to this connection here where the Spirit of God indwells him. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And then the child who is going to be conceived by the Holy Spirit is uh, coming. And this mother is coming to him who is going to be the mother of this child. And there is this, uh, there's a supernatural work that goes on. John is filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Elizabeth is about to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And she is going to do something that she otherwise would not do. And know things that she otherwise would not know. So it is that John, even though he's in the womb, he cannot see with his eyes. And he cannot uh, hear the baby, Jesus, who again may at this point not even yet have been conceived. But nonetheless, he knows because the Spirit of God works supernaturally in him to cause and to bring about this reaction. At the same time, it's not said here that the Holy Spirit leaps in the womb. It's said that John does this. The baby leaps in the womb. So he is taking the action, but he is empowered and caused to do so by the Spirit of God. So why does this happen? Why does this take place? Well, it's clear that this is not merely natural but it is the work of God it is the work of God the Holy Spirit and he is specifically working through this one that he is uh, filling from his mother's womb to testify through this physical action that this one who is coming is the mother of a very very special child now at this point Mary doesn't know that this has happened Uh, I mean, I suppose if Elizabeth is, you know, getting knocked up off the ground or something like that, then maybe she sees something going on. But she is about to know in a moment. And it's going to indicate this for her, that everything Gabriel said was true. Everything the angel promised her is true. This is additional testimony that is unmistakable. So the baby leaps in the womb for joy. But it isn't just the baby who is affected because now we get the interpretation of what is going on the interpretation of mary of who she is the interpretation of what happened when mary came in the interpretation of the baby leaping in the womb and the interpretation of mary's response to the message that had been given before and this is an inspired authoritative interpretation this is elizabeth's inspired message Elizabeth's inspired message. And when I say inspired, I'm not saying that Elizabeth just got really excited about this. What I'm saying is Elizabeth was speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, namely from God, speaking the message that the Holy Spirit caused her to speak. And it begins uh, by telling us this, the foundation for this message is in verse 41, where it says Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is something that's taken place over the course of biblical history. Um, Sometimes in history, someone would be, uh, they would become a prophet to the extent that it is their entire occupation. We think of people like Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel, although some of these were priests as well. But uh, they, they came to be known as a prophet in their role. On other occasions, they might prophesy once 
only or maybe once or twice. But in all of these instances um, where the Spirit of God or where the message came directly to them, the Spirit of God would take this message or would take this person and, and in, a certain, uh, in a certain sense would take over their knowledge and their minds, not removing the person's consciousness or anything like that, although there were different degrees of the way that this would work out and uh, the, de- the degree of... Uh, Act, being active versus passive in that that would take place but nonetheless the holy spirit would come upon a person and would cause them to be able to speak the truth of the word of god and um, here as in many cases in the old testament the holy spirit comes upon this particular person elizabeth and she is filled with the holy spirit and she speaks she speaks and so all the words that she speaks are Um, the result of the Spirit's direct revelation of these words through her. So what you have is two things going on at once. The Spirit is giving a message. God is delivering a message through this person, but she's not a puppet. She is also herself speaking. These words are providing new information that she understands as she's even speaking them, but they're not against her will, and they're not even apart from her will. The Spirit empowers her to speak things that are exactly God's inerrant truth at the same time that she says them. So when Elizabeth speaks here, she is giving her own thoughts, but they are not thoughts that originated in her. They are words that are the word of God. They're personal. She means them, but they're also inerrant truth. Her assessment of the situation has the divine stamp of approval because it is the Spirit of God who is carrying her along to do this, which is the language used in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 about how Scripture came to us. Listen to what Peter says, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. This does not mean that you cannot come to the Scripture and interpret what the Scripture means. What he's saying is that what is on the pages of Scripture is not the result of some individual person's interpretation of the situation or of the world or of the circumstances. Scripture doesn't come about because someone somewhere, some individual human being said i think that that's what this means no scripture happened for that reason no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will it all originated from god so men moved by the holy spirit spoke from god so anytime there is something that is written down on the pages of scripture that is divine truth even if a person spoke that and they did and if a person wrote that and they did and even if a person made the choice to sit down and do that and they did the reason they did that is because the spirit of god was carrying them along to make that happen which means that even though scripture involves the human will and human activity it is originated in god and so it is here with elizabeth's message the words that she speaks come from her she says them she means them she believes them they come in her voice mary looks at elizabeth and she is the one speaking and yet they are from god with 100 percent accuracy at the same time as they are 100 percent from her own heart from what she actually believes and would assert and would claim to be true so she's filled with the holy spirit And she says these things, and she says them loudly. She cried out with a loud voice. Well, there goes that secret. So much for keeping it quiet. Who knows who else heard her, but that's not the emphasis. The emphasis is on the fact that she spoke and Mary heard her. Uh, We know, by the way, that Mary is pregnant or that she is about to be when she shows up here. But Elizabeth doesn't know that until now in fact she doesn't know that this is going to take place at all she's not expecting someone to come through the door she hasn't been warned about this she hasn't been told who this person would be she hasn't been told how long it would be until this uh until the messiah would come that her son john would be the forerunner for she hasn't been told any of these things she doesn't know who it is she may not even know mary herself at all She is said to be Mary's relative, but that word is a very broad term. 
It's not like they necessarily grew up playing together. I mean, uh, Elizabeth is much, much older than her. So she may have known her. She may have been a closer relative than, uh, than we might think. But we really don't even know. But either way, Elizabeth now says something that is entirely the result of supernatural information given to her by virtue of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And she prophesies and she gives a message to Mary about what is true concerning Mary and concerning the child. Now before we get into the details of that, I just want to note while we're here as well, what a message it sends to us that these two women, not men in this case, but these two women play vitally important roles in the outworking of God's design. And not just because women are the only ones who can get pregnant, but also because God has singled them out to receive messages and to speak messages that explain what is going on and to play these very prominent roles. In fact, here, Zacharias is nowhere to be found. And that could be because he can't speak or hear, but nonetheless, he has been sidelined. And these are the two featured people, Mary and Elizabeth. Now, the Bible, of course, makes clear distinctions between men and women, and in so doing, it also assigns for them specific roles and responsibilities. And this is especially true within marriage and within the church. And these roles include, among other things, authority and submission roles. And there are various roles that women are not to take the leading role on with regard to headship in the home and in the church in particular. And the world loves to twist that fact and to make it seem like Christianity is hostile toward women that it has some kind of a low view of women because it doesn't assign to them all of the same roles and responsibilities that men have. But that is not the case. Not only do women have a glorious purpose overall, and especially Christian women in the world doing things that men literally cannot do, but here we find something especially sweet, which is that Mary being blessed in a way uh, that no man can be as the mother of the Lord. And Elizabeth being the chosen vessel to deliver this news and to prophesy these truths to Mary for them to one day be recorded upon these pages. And it is just a very great kindness of the Lord to show us that he is concerned for all people, not just males, not just the lowly, or not just the the lofty, but also the lowly, not just those who are well known, but also those who are not known. As we'll see when we get into Mary's words in her words in response that follow in the next section. Before we get there, though, we find the words of Elizabeth in verses 42 through 45. The first thing that she speaks is Mary's blessing. She proclaims Mary's blessing. She cries out with a loud voice and she says, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. She is already in a state of having been blessed before this baby is even born. That is how great of a blessing that she has. That's how blessed and what a special child this is going to be. And uh, this singles out Mary as particularly blessed among women. Now, we need to be careful here because there are other places, in fact, in Scripture where this kind of language is used. Jael in Judges 5.24 has similar language applied to her. Uh, We can overdo this message, and many have actually overdone this message throughout the course of, of time and spoken of Mary as if she is the woman and she is it. And uh, in fact, going to taking that so far as to revere her uh, above or basically on an equal footing with the Lord Jesus himself, uh, exalting her almost to a superhuman kind of state. It would be a, a huge mistake to do that here. But nonetheless, she is very blessed. Uh, at the same time, we understand that there is an even greater blessing than being the mother of the Lord. Because Jesus himself will say later on in Luke chapter 11... Uh, He responds to a question in this way, verses 27 and 28. While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. And he is recognizing that to be spiritually one of the children of God and someone who belongs to Jesus Christ and one of his followers is more important than any physical connection to the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, make no mistake, she is blessed, hugely blessed. To be the mother of the Lord, to be the mother of the Son of God, every mother longs for their child to to be 
successful, to have a, a good life, and, you know, for the things that they do to matter in the right ways. And people may define that very differently from one another, but they take great joy in their children and their relationship to their children. And children themselves are by nature a blessing to the one who has them. Psalm 127 tells us this. Children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Proverbs 10.1 says, A wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish son is grief to his mother. But there is a, there is a connection there where you invest in and you hope in uh, your children. You hope for, the, for their good. Parents care about their kids and uh, love to see them doing the kinds of things that God has made them to do. So, of course, then, imagine that you learn your child is going to be none other than the Messiah himself. Of course Mary is blessed. Of course she's blessed uniquely. No one else has this privilege And so Elizabeth is here just affirming what is obvious if this child is, in fact, who God promises he will be. And he is, in fact, that one that God says he will be. So she proclaims Mary's blessing, a blessing upon her among women and the blessing of the fruit of her womb, namely Jesus Christ. She then, in verse 43, recognizes something about herself. She recognizes her undeserved honor. Elizabeth recognizes the privilege that she has in this event taking place. This is an implicit statement of how great this baby is to who would be born to Mary. But nonetheless, it is a recognition that Elizabeth has a blessing herself. How has it happened to me, she says, that the mother of my Lord would come to me? She gives this significant fact that the child is going to be her own Lord, her own master. Now, at this point in Luke's gospel, we know quite a bit about Jesus and who he's going to be, that he will be the son of God, that he will be the Messiah. And uh, we know that John has promised to be the forerunner of the Lord. But all the pieces have not quite yet been put together in the very crystal clear way that we now understand it in light of ongoing revelation in the scriptures that Lord for Jesus not only means that he will be the master and the messianic ruler, but that he will be none other than God himself. That to call upon the name of the Lord, according to Romans chapter 10, is to call upon the name of Jesus. The Old Testament promise that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, Yahweh, God, will be saved is applied to none other than the Lord Jesus himself. And so as you further develop the uh, understanding of who Jesus is and sort of fill that out across redemptive history, we understand that Lord uh, means that he is God, not just the master, not just the one who is in charge. But at this point, uh, it's uncertain as to exactly whether that's what is indicated here by Elizabeth. Nonetheless, we know that it is true and what a great privilege it is for her to have not only the one who would be the master over her and the one that she would serve as the Messiah, but the fact that that Messiah is in fact none other than the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God himself, fully divine. But Elizabeth recognizes this great one coming in the womb or coming to uh, the mother of this one coming to her and says, of all people, To me? And this says something about herself, that she views herself as unworthy of this event happening. This is a humble recognition on her part. She says this is true, that she uh, doesn't deserve this despite these facts. She was righteous in her character, as righteous as anyone. And so she should be the kind of person that if people were, you know, they might tell her, you know, no, you deserve this. You're righteous. You're blameless. Of course they would come to you. I mean, if you were going to pick out of, uh, out of a group of people who the mother of the Lord would come to, Elizabeth, you know, this, is, this would be you. But she says, no, how can this happen to me? And not only that, of course, but Elizabeth was carrying the special baby who would be called John. She knew this, and yet she still said, I can't believe this is happening. The mother of the Lord is coming to me. Now, our attitude to what happens to us is, Often, very easily the opposite, isn't it? We say, how has it happened that X, Y, Z has happened to me? But we don't mean that in the sense of a privilege. We mean that in the sense of complaining. How could this happen to me? I don't deserve this. This shouldn't be happening. I haven't done anything wrong. Why is this bad thing happening? Why is this trial coming? Why are people mistreating me? Why is this trouble coming upon me? We say, how can such a bad thing happen to me? Elizabeth recognized the opposite. 
that her privileges are undeserved. It's not the hardships that are. There are things that do happen to us that we have not directly caused or that we have not directly deserved. There are many examples of this in the scripture. And even someone like Zacharias and Elizabeth had not deserved to be barren in the sense of doing anything in particular to deserve that. Job had not done anything to deserve all the suffering that came upon him in the sowing and reaping sense. Bad things do happen to people who have not done anything directly to deserve that. But still, we need to recognize that our privileges are the things that are undeserved. Our suffering we should take in stride as those who are lowly sinners who have rebelled against God and we deserve much worse, but our privileges ought to be the things that cause us to say, I can't believe I have this. I can't believe I have this privilege. Uh, we find her sharing as well in uh, verse 43 in something significant. Notice here how she responds. How has this happened that the mother of my Lord would come to me? Notice the way that Elizabeth responds to Mary. Uh, she rejoices with her. She rejoices with her. She is not in any way jealous or envious of what Mary has. Uh, this is illustrated on a larger level when we get to later on in the gospel accounts. And John himself is very content to serve as the bride, uh, serve as the, the, uh, uh, the best man, so to speak, to the groom, to Jesus. He recognizes his position before Jesus and he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. He is not bitter at all about that role. And so it is here. You have someone who is in Elizabeth's womb, John, who is not as great as the one who is in the womb of the one coming to him. Mary's child is going to be greater than John. But rather than say, well, why does she get to have this one? I mean, I've lived longer. I've demonstrated my righteous life. You know, God shouldn't it kind of be the other way around. I mean, she could have this forerunner and I could have this one. There's no hint of that at all. She is very thankful for what she has. And uh, she doesn't complain. But often we don't do that either. We're okay with what we get. We're glad for it. We're thankful for it until we see someone that has something a little better little bit more and we get envious and say why couldn't I have that one why couldn't I have that thing that's a little bit nicer why couldn't this person treat me the way that they treat that person and we get jealous not so with Elizabeth she rejoiced all the way for Mary on the basis of the blessing that had come to her so then she proclaims this blessing upon Mary she recognizes her undeserved honor she then reports the baby's reaction. We've already seen what happened here, so we won't spend long on this. But uh, she explains this and tells this now to Mary. Here's the basis for the fact that she knows something is going on. She says, For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. She's explaining to Mary just how special of a position Mary herself finds herself in. And as soon as she simply heard the sound of Mary's greeting, Mary didn't have to say anything. She didn't have to tell her what, who she was or what was coming. She didn't have to report what the angel said. She simply came in, she greeted her, and what happened? The baby leaps in her womb for joy. So she reports the baby's reaction to Mary. But then she finishes with this. She commends Mary's faith. She commends Mary's faith. She says in verse 45, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Now, God is going to do what he's going to do. There will always be a fulfillment of what God has spoken. The issue is not whether God will keep his promise. The issue is whether we will actually believe it. And this is what we saw with Zacharias. In verse 20, it says, and behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. They're going to happen whether Zacharias believes it or not. And the same thing is true about what's going to happen to Mary. It doesn't matter in one sense whether she believes or not that this baby's coming. He's coming. The baby's going to be born. She's going to conceive in this way and bear a son. And then he is going to be born and he is going to be who God says he is. But she responded in faith. And so she says, blessed is she who believed that God would keep his promise. There's a blessing for that. And so it is in every era. 
in every person, for every word of God. There is a blessing upon people who believe that God will do what he said that he will do. This is the entirety of our Christian life. We live by faith. We look at the scriptures and say, I don't know how this is going to happen. I don't know when this is going to happen. I can't see it from here. I can't look up over the mountain from the valley and see how these events are going to take place. I don't understand what this is going to look like, but I know God is going to do it. God is going to keep his promises. And these are the things that carry us through the hardest of times. And they keep us grounded properly and focused properly in the best of times. Because we say God is going to keep his promises about the future. And of course the fact that he turns out to keep all of these that he has given to Zacharias, to Mary. And he shows us this when John is born and Jesus is born of these women who were unable otherwise to conceive This just simply shows us God's faithfulness and God's reliability so that we know not only did he do what he said that he would do, but we can trust him that when we go to him for our forgiveness of sins that he will give it. We know that God kept his promise about these physical events taking place. Do we believe God's promise about doing what he said that he would do concerning salvation? When you go to the scriptures and God says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, do you believe that promise? When you go to the scriptures and you understand that the righteous one will live by faith, do you believe that? When it says that Jesus is coming again to judge the world in righteousness, do you believe that he's going to do that? These are the things that consist of our faith. Do you believe that the cross is sufficient to pay for all of your sins? Or do you say, no, I, I think I'm too bad for that. I think that God's promise about that, maybe he's not being sincere. Maybe he just doesn't know how bad I am. Maybe he just doesn't know about that other thing I'm going to do later. Maybe he doesn't know that something else is going to happen that's going to change the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. And of course, this is not the case. We need to take God at his word in every way. Believe his promise of the gospel. Believe his promise that whoever comes to him by faith will be saved. And that one day he's going to send Jesus again to make all things right. Mary is blessed on the basis of her response of faith, and so we will be too. We may not have the same personal promise of a supernatural son being born to us, But we certainly have the same promise that that son will be ours completely if we come to him. And so the words of the song that we sang this morning resonate, don't they? Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. That's the only preparation that you need to come to Jesus, is to understand that you need him to save you. And if you go to him, the promise of God is that he will forgive your sins Just as surely as he was born to Mary and John was born to Elizabeth, so also you will be born of God when you come to him and believe the message. And that is the call upon us today. And what a blessing it is to be able to consider those things now as we come to the time of communion together, as we think about the sufficiency of the work of Christ. And we reflect upon that through this this ordinance that gives us a remembrance and a reminder of Jesus' death. Brian is going to come and Lead us as we partake of the Lord's table together. As we approach the Lord's table this morning, it's important to remind ourselves why we participate in these ordinances. Baptism and the Lord's table, communion. We're identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are proclaiming who we are and what the Lord has done. Unlike baptism, which Each individual is proclaiming that themselves and the rest of the body is observing here with the Lord's table. We are all participating together, proclaiming we are one body in Christ, one body together. It's a corporate experience. Remembering the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. His bruised body, his shed blood, the Sinless Savior died. Because of that, my soul is counted free. 
We remember that we were not redeemed with an insignificant price. In 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, it says this, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Precious. Precious in the sight of God. And as Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, they had built up what they called a love feast, a dinner that they shared before they shared with in communion. And some in their fellowship were going hungry and others were drinking far too much. And that's the context for what I'm about to read here in 1 Corinthians. If you'd like to turn there with me, 1 Corinthians 11. I'd like, you to read, I'd like to read you to read with me Paul's words to the Corinthians about this ordinance. By the way, if you need uh, the elements, just go ahead and raise your hand. There are men in the back who will bring it to you if you need uh, the elements. So as he reminds them of the purpose for this ordinance, he's, he's having to caution them because of their selfishness prior to them partaking. Uh, they were not concerned with their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. They were only thinking of themselves, some of them. So as I read these words, please consider your own heart, um, not only as it relates to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, but also as it relates to how you've been living your life in relationship to all God has asked you to do in and through his word. Um, if you will start reading with me in verse 17. Uh, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together in the same place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. For do you not have houses in which to eat and drink, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? This I will not praise you. For I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the, this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must test himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. So one of the admonitions that's repeated through here is to examine yourself. It's to uh, judge yourself rightly. And so um, as we approach the, the bread and, and the cup, um, which Jesus says was for you, this is my body, it's for you. It's for you. This blood, it's for you. Let's consider our lives and how we have been living them and confess any sin that's there lingering in the in our hearts and humbly 
confess our sin. Um, I'd like to ask Philip if he would come and, and ask uh, the Lord's blessing upon uh, the bread as we uh, partake. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you've made a way for us to be right with you, for us to be forgiven of our sins, and we thank you that we find that in Christ. We thank you that he um, died on the cross for us, that his body was broken, that he did indeed die. He was the only one who could suffer the cost of our sins, suffer the wrath that we deserved. He's the only one who could survive, and we see that in that you raised him from the dead. Father, we thank you that we can put our hope in him. We thank you that we have this time that we can remember what he did for us. And it's not like we forgot the facts, but we forget to live by it. We forget to have it in the forefront of our mind. We forget how much we really need his sacrifice and how much others need it as well. So help us as we go on through these next days and weeks to remember these things and help that drive our attitudes and actions and all that we do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So after giving thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. I'd like to ask Greg if he would ask the Lord's blessing on the cup. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you gave your son for us, the gracious gift to give him. And we uh, pause in this moment as well to consider the great suffering that it was, not only on your part to give him, but for him to bleed and to die. And we think of the care that we give ourselves when we have uh, the smallest of injuries, of cuts, of when we are bleeding, when we are suffering in any way, and yet how fully and willingly he went to the cross and poured himself out unto death. Father, may this time together where we consider his shed blood be fixed in our minds, reminding us and causing us to meditate upon and ponder the wonder that he was willing to suffer in this way for us. We who are sinful and who completely did not deserve such a sacrifice, and yet he loved us and gave himself for us. <clears throat> we thank you that he did that. We thank you that you've given us life. We thank you that you've taken away all our sins, and we praise you for your grace and your kindness to us. We pray in Jesus' name. What a joy it is as a body to come together and remember and identify with the people of God. We are one in Christ. We are united with him. So in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this is cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. finished the original Lord's Supper, they went out uh, to the mountain and they sang a hymn. Let's do that right now. <laughs> 